0: This is episode 28 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto, joined today by my co-host, Corey Persick from Functional Media, as we speak with physical therapist, Johnny Owens, about blood flow restriction training. Okay, so can we start by having you introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. My name is uh, Johnny Owens. Uh, I'm a physical therapist and uh, currently I, I'm with what's called Owens Recovery Science. It's a company that, that does consulting and education, primarily in blood flow restriction, although we do some other stuff, too. Um, and also we have a device that we use for blood flow restriction that we sell as well. I'm also a clinical researcher. do research uh, primarily with the Department of Defense and, and several other groups around the world now.
0: And how did you get started with the blood flow restriction, and what made you decide to start an educational company?
1: The story is is maybe a little bit long-winded, but down here in San Antonio, we we have a place called the Center for the Intrepid, um, and and it's at Brooke Army Medical Center. And and so um, you, you guys probably don't know. The, the military landscape in, in America with our bases, but, but San Antonio is known as Military City USA. We have a lot of bases here and, and we have the military's largest medical facility in the world. And so I was there during the wars um, from 2004 and still there as a clinical contractor. But we, we were primarily trying to work on programs to, to get the combat casualty back to as high a level of function as possible. Some of those programs were going well. Some of them were, were not going as well as we would like. One problem we were having was the limb salvage patient. That's a, a patient with a very mangled limb who elected to keep their limb and avoid amputation. We were finding that a year or two after that, the many of them were going on to a delayed amputation. And so that, that was a little bit... Uh, frustrating, obviously, for the service member and for us. And so we were looking at everything we could from regenerative medicine techniques to, to restore quality muscle tissue that was lost on the battlefield uh, to some different bone tech healing techniques to exoskeletons. And the one thing that we kept having a problem with was restoring true muscle quantity and quality to a fairly functional level, especially in these high-end injuries. And, and so blood flow restriction was an avenue that we started looking at uh, along with some of our muscle physiologists and our tourniquet researchers in the DOD as a way to maybe use a lower load to, to make some positive changes in muscle. And so we, we kind of had three target groups that we were really looking at Uh, the limb salvage patient, uh, what we call the VML, the volumetric muscle loss patient. So someone who were trying to regrow muscle um, with regenerative techniques and then the orthopedic injury, um, because we also had a, uh, it's a very high number of, of your typical kind of sportsman ortho injuries like ACLs and things like that.
0: And can you explain what blood flow restriction is and how it works?
1: Yeah, sure. So that, that could take a long time. <laughs> so because uh, there's a lot of debate on on what what really is happening mechanistically. but, but what it is is uh, you, you apply a tourniquet to the, the proximal upper thigh or the proximal upper arm. And then you inflate that tourniquet to a to a specific pressure. And so that that's even a contentious point um, with with some folks. How much pressure do you apply and, and how do you know how much to apply? Um, we, we really think best guidance right now is knowing exactly how much pressure it takes to make the blood flow stop. In, in a patient or an individual. And, and once we know that number, then we can dial it down to a percentage of that, what they call LOP limb occlusion pressure. You might see in the papers called AOP arterial occlusion pressure. Um, and, and once we know those numbers, then, then we decide, okay, I'm going to have this person typically exercise at, at a, at a no load to a very low load, low load state while they are under reduced blood flow. And, and so we're, we're basing everything the way we do it off of arterial inflow. So, so we're, we're basing it off a of percent pressure of what we're allowing to go into the arteries. And, and as you're exercising at this low load under this hypoxic condition, it, it seems like a lot of really positive things happen. So um, as, as you're reducing blood flow, you, you basically start to, to choke out maybe the slow twitch fibers. So the Krebs cycle just isn't as efficient. And so when someone's exercising at this lower load, they're forced to use kind of these higher threshold motor units, the fast-switch fibers. Um, And and when you start to use those, all sorts of positive things happen. So we see increased muscle activation. Um, We see this metabolite pool build up in the muscle, which are the the metabolic kind of waste products of fast-switch metabolism. So increased acidity, um, lactate, and things like that, which signal the pituitary gland to... uh, to release growth hormone and, and then on down the line, we see you know, a, a drive and in increased protein synthetic rates from that. Uh, we're starting to see changes in, in these progenitor growth factors like the myogenic stem cells and maybe even the hematopoietic stem cells out of bone. So you get kind of this anabolic cascade, this regenerative medicine repair cascade um, that happens. And, and all this is very similar to lift and heavy Um, And so you can make these pathways happen when you lift heavy. It seems like when we put a tourniquet on, we get a lot of the same similar activation and that's kind of what we see from the arterial side on, on, you know, things change on the venous side. It's easier to, to block venous return because they're much more compliant as vasculature compared to the arteries with muscle. And so when we're reducing blood flow significantly in the artery, we're probably really stopping venous return. And so from that, we see things like a, a pooling of fluid in the limb, which starts to, to create this pump effect. And from that pump effect, uh, we, we're, we're seeing the, this probably swelling that happens within the muscle fiber, which, which might be an anabolic stimulus to, to mitigate things like atrophy. We're seeing this, this accumulation of all the metabolites. So they're really trapped in the muscle um, because we're not seeing this venous return. And then also when we're blocking venous return, we see stuff like stroke volume go down which, which means we're changing the cardiac output equation. So even from an endurance profile, so doing things like just walking or, or spinning lightly on a bike, we can manipulate stroke volume and, and change cardiac output where heart rate needs to go up. So we're, we're starting to see adaptations with things like VO2 or strength and hypertrophy with low level things like that. So that's some of the mechanisms hotly debated. If you go to ACSM and, and we talk about this stuff, you'll, you'll hear people throw in a lot of different things, but, but in a nutshell, it's a tourniquet, we reduce blood flow and exercise at a low level in that hypoxic state and try and recreate what you could do lifting heavy.
2: So is this all new research or has this been around for a long time?
1: It's been around for a long time. And so some of it was done in, in labs physiologically to kind of study aerobic versus anaerobic metabolism. A lot of it um, was, was really championed by the Japanese, a gentleman named uh, Seto who who calls it katsu, which means pressure. They were doing it quite a bit, and so clinically, um, it, it's new. And so, really, over the last few years, it, it seemed to to really taken off like a rocket in, in the clinical setting. And, and when we first were were looking at doing it clinically, we called a a, a lot of the the, the well published BFR researchers that were already out there, and and, and two of them, I, I mean, I remember had almost the exact same statement is when we started talking with them and they said you know we, we've been wondering what's taking you guys clinically so long to start looking at this and accept it because it just seems like something perfect for your population who is, is very load intolerant so science it's really been around a long time the, the amount of published papers will make your head spin um if you just do a pub bench search i think we're up into the you know almost into the 800s now of, of published papers, but clinically it's just really kind of taken off over probably the last five years.
0: What are the main populations that can benefit from using BFR?
1: You know, the easiest populations that we can say right now are, are your athletes because they, they really adopted it right off the bat. We work with pretty much every professional team in, in the country, now, you know, in Canada with, with a lot of y'all's teams up there. Um, the military has obviously taken off with it. And so if you just say, like, what was this big population boom that clinically just you know adopted it? Uh, well, the early adopters were the, the athlete and, and the service member. And so that's that's a younger, healthier population. So um, obviously, I, I think just looking prospectively at, at numbers that we have. That's, that's been the, the group that we can say without a doubt if you're in a, especially in a period of disuse or or there's some reason you, you can't use your limb because of an injury or surgery you're, you're a great candidate probably the group that we would like to see it most used for would be the the elderly patient so the sarcopenic um, or sarcopenia that can happen as you age where your your muscles just very intolerant to to protein and you have a harder time keeping muscle on you're probably losing more than you're able to keep on as you as you age that that's the real kind of target group that that we're interested in and and so you know we we have all these studies going on all over the place and and so just the, the lay of the landscape we have nine acl trials and so you can see what everyone jumped on right off the bat um, but but now we we have a total hip trial that's starting up in Germany um, We're we're meeting with a diabetic group to to start a diabetic trial the total knee trial that's going on in the DOD So we're really seeing this shift towards the the more geriatric population And then the the others are are the big questions that you know There's there's needs to be studies done before we rubber stamp it and because there is definitely risk rewards but but the reward might be high enough that it's the juice is worth the squeeze and so Potentially, the, the, the very sick individuals, so you know, folks that, that might be suffering from cachexia, which is the muscle wasting with cancer and, and really just can't do anything to keep that muscle on. Um, this might be a low load alternative for them, our vascular conditions, so peripheral arterial diseases and things like that. Is there a way we can create an angiogenic response to, to help with vascularity? We're we're looking at it with the University of Miami for cardiac rehab uh, because we can add muscle easily and also can manipulate stroke volume. And even looking into peds now um, and and, and even with a group that we work with, with with pediatric neurologic patients, um, is is there a play there as well? So um, it's kind of going full spectrum here.
0: So with geriatric populations or people who aren't completely healthy. are there any contraindications to using this in those populations?
1: Yeah so we have a full contraindication list that's that's part of our device manual that was submitted with, with the device uh, for its medical listing and and so some things that you'll see uh, potentially with with these geriatric populations are on that list uncontrolled hypertension, the the vascular diseases or vascular conditions if they do have a, a cardiovascular, uh, disease or condition, just because we don't know um, those, you know, we would definitely lean on very strong medical clearance and, and exactly, you know, what's the, the risk reward here. Uh, but but more and more is coming around to say, like, well, maybe these individuals, you know, the, the risk isn't as bad as we as we think. We, we just put a paper out earlier this year. Uh, systematic review and meta-analysis looking at BFR in, in, in the hypertensive individuals and, and what does that show? And, and really, we, we, we found from the meta-analysis a, a, a non-significant slight rise in systolic blood pressure, but um, it rapidly returns the baseline. doesn't seem like it's enough for us to, to be super concerned, at least moving forward with studies, uh, maybe even if, if, if everyone's on board moving forward with it in those type of individuals. Uh, I just got a an email today, a paper came out, uh, BFR showing positive gains, with just passive range of motion, uh, with individuals in the ICU. So, some, some of these medically unstable patients and maybe even our older patients, um, might be more candidous than we than we know, but, but those are some of the things we, we definitely look for. And then there's a tolerance thing. BFR is hard. Um, you know, you got to have someone that can tolerate a tourniquet on their limb, can tolerate exercises and building up, you know, this big lactate and, and acidity in the muscle, and it feels almost like heavy lifting. So the perceptual uh, effects of it and, and their overall tolerance is something you, you want to weigh. And, and we, we vary that. We can control how much percent occlusion we do. And so, you know, rather than maybe using an 80% limb occlusion in an elderly total knee, we might start with like 60%. And, and and really what we find is those folks, usually it's the, the pressure from the tourniquet that's a little bit the most uncomfortable, but if we ease them into it over a, a week or two, they really attenuate to it.
2: Do you have to have a certain pressure to get the effect when you're doing inclusion?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, we think you have to have a certain pressure for us to be able to standardize it um, so that we can say for this patient, we're doing this and this and this and everyone's kind of getting equal. Um, how much pressure has an effect right now? That's, that's, that's debatable. And, and the one thing that we're all looking for is what's the lowest pressure to have an effect? And so there's things we can do to manipulate occlusion um, at a lower pressure. So a, a tapered cuff, a, a wider cuff. Those are able to get to occlusion much faster at much lower numbers, so we have less pressure. So that's, that's the first mani- the variable that we can easily manipulate. But then it's like, how low do you need to go? Um, for instance, there's an EMG study where they use 40% pressure, or 60% pressure, or 80% pressure in the lower extremities. And, and, and they looked at the, at the vastus medialis and rectus femoris. Almost from the first set on at 80 percent limb occlusion pressure, that significant increase in muscle activation and muscle fatigue was significantly increased at 40 percent pressure. They didn't see that at all at 60 percent only towards those last sets. And so, you know, you can look at, you know, take a take it mechanistically and translate that. Well, at 80 percent limb occlusion, we, we can probably get quicker muscle activation. And so those are kind of some of the things we're having to lean on right now. And then we just have to look at our clinical trials. Of, did we get this affected? At 80 versus 60, you know, in the in the upper extremity, you know, Jeremy Lenicky, who's, who's one of our friends and colleagues, you know, they found in their lab that 40 percent pressure in the upper extremity did just as well as 90 percent pressure, um, at least for upper extremity exercises. And so you got to remember, we're trying to get to the vessels, which are the large vessels which live down closer to the bone. So you have to get through soft tissue to, to start to occlude those. And the upper extremity, you, you typically just don't have enough soft tissue to need a lot of pressure. Um, and it's not tolerable. We, we did a wrist fracture trial in DOD and we started our pilot data at 80% limb occlusion pressure and patients just couldn't tolerate it. And they were like, man, my hand's getting like very cold and, and, and numb and which probably isn't a good thing. And so um, we, we saw the same thing as Jeremy's group, you know, at around 50%. Um, We were seeing similar results, but the large extremity there's just so much more tissue to get through. Um, We're seeing it; it might need to be higher pressures, especially what we've seen, and and we put this out in a recent ACSM paper in clinical settings where we're probably not using the loads that you see in the BFR studies. A lot of the BFR studies are at 20 to 30 percent of a one rep max. We can't ever really understand how to even measure a one rep max clinically because you know someone's hurt. Um, That if you're using weights that are lower than that, you probably need to have a higher pressure to have an effect uh, from a recent paper that's come out. So that's what we know right now.
0: What are the risks associated with using BFR?
1: So that, that's that's hard to say because we, we haven't seen a, a lot of adverse events. And so I, I guess from a risk profile, we say what are the adverse events that are reported um, first in the literature and it and, and really, um, if, if you see anything that's been reported in the literature as an adverse event, there's been some cases of rhabdo that have been reported. Um, I think we're up to four now. And, and so there's all sorts of things that can cause rhabdo. And, and so some of these cases, um, it looks like there might have just been a volume issue where they, they did just too many rounds of exercises. So they did hundreds of reps. Um, one of the cases, the person was, was a fairly sick individual and on some medications that were known to have a rhabdo risk. One of, the, one of the cases, it was a hockey player who developed rhabdo. And then after he was um, discharged from the hospital, you know, the authors wrote that he restarted his BFR therapy. So we're not sure if the medical team even felt BFR was the cause of that. So, so that's really the, the most published thing that, that we'll really see. And it's only case studies. And so if you look at these thousands of subjects that have been in BFR trials, and, and we're only seeing four cases over years here. Um, that's that's a very low risk profile and and then we can say well well, what about from our users what What adverse events have been reported um and, and we just discussed this on, on a podcast we do you know we're probably in three million plus b f r um, applications a year um just here in the states uh, we think the number's probably higher, but we we kept it pretty low there. Um, our adverse event reports have, have been minimal to none. Um, we've had a couple of syncope cases reported, and it wasn't a true, you know, they passed out, but it was getting very close to that. You know, I got the high beam blinkers on. I look like I'm, I'm about to pass out. Um, and, and that was in in some females that two of them, we knew that they were dehydrated. Um, we've had var- one varicose vein that didn't fully rupture, but it actually did um Bruise. Um, it looked like it went into a bruising effect, um, but other than that, we haven't really had any any true adverse events to, that we can say other than those.
2: Any uh, like neural issues or like sensory stuff from just from the compression?
1: No, not that we've seen. But that that's the number one concern. So when when we first were were vetting this with our tourniquet experts here in the DoD, we're lucky here at. at, at at San Antonio Military Medical Center, um, the Institute of Surgical Research is is on our base. And that's where a lot of the DOD's tourniquet research is done. Um, and we would have tourniquet animal labs there. And, and so we were able to lean on those guys for best guidance. And, and, and we was first were discussing this, you know, what, what are things we need to be aware or concerned of? We were all very nervous about a BTE um, potentially happen or, or venous thromboembolism type of events. And, and so when they looked at the way we were planning to apply it, that wasn't their concern. Their real concern was potential for nerve damage because a recent paper just came out from the DOD looking at the wars. The, the number one complication from tourniquet application on the battlefield was, was uh, persistent nerve damage from it. And so there's things you can do, again, if you understand tourniquets and, and decades of published safety profiles from tourniquet literature to, to mitigate compression on a nerve. And so again, because the vessels are deep into tissue down by the bone, we're having to really push through the soft tissue to get there. The more of a pressure gradient you start to get to push down there, you start to hit nerve uh, tissue first, and and nerves are myelinated. And as you start to put pressure on a nerve, if you just held a nerve and squeezed it for a little bit, you can demyelinate those those large motor fibers, um, and and that's where you see this these paresthesias and, and 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 potential paralysis. So. We haven't had reports of that. We have had a patient um, that reached out that was using some sort of pump-up thing at a clinic that um, had some paresthesias. Um, but the, the ways you mitigate that, a wide cuff increases surface area, a tapered cuff, a cuff that's on a microprocessor that's able to change as the limb moves or as the swelling happens. Um, is is what is used in the ORs to to try and, and minimize any potential nerve damage. And and our guidance was whatever they're going to use in the ORs that's been shown to be safe. Um, we need to look at that same safety profile and 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 not bear our head in the sand and ignore it. We we need it in the rehab clinical settings to understand that as well. So uh, yeah, we haven't seen any issues.
0: What are your thoughts on like the cheaper? Pump up cuffs that don't use any kind of Doppler ultrasound or anything to determine the limb occlusion pressure.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, conflict of interest here. Um, I use the Delphi system, and Delphi—they're—they're they're the, the leaders in tourniquets and tourniquet technology and tourniquet patents—and and just have tons of, of engineers and scientists there that that. Um, we're able to lean on to help us understand this better. So from a clinical perspective, um, I, I, I don't like to mess around. And so I, I always start with with something that our chief told us at our, at our base. And, and that was, um, you know, always think about this as if this was on the front page of The New York Times the next day. And so if a patient or, or an athlete or anyone that I'm working with says, man, I can't feel my hand anymore. Um, and, and the lawyer calls me and said, Hey, this guy says you were doing something to stop his blood flow in his, in his arm. Um, and now he can't feel his fingers and, and, and this is a problem. What were you using? And I said, well, you know, I ordered this pump up thing and, and just kind of guessed at how much to take it up. Um, that's, that's a huge problem. I mean, basically I, I might as well just hand my license over and, and say, how much money do you want at that point? Because I've got nothing, you know, I, from a medical you know, FDA standpoint, I've, kinda, I've gone against everything that says, you know, this is what a medical device should be. From decades of this is the, the safe way to, to take blood flow out of patients' limbs, I've ignored that. And so um, clinicians, I think it's just crazy um, to use something like that. And, and then I don't like to waste time, and, and we always are looking for excellence in, in our care. And And this is something that we were we were very cognizant of of working with these wounded warriors um, the pump up ones you you're, you're going to have a very hard time ever getting to occlusion if if ever get to occlusion because it they're thin and it takes so much pressure to finally get down there that that if you, you know you're careful and haven't caused some soft tissue injury um, it's very uncomfortable and, and most patients aren't going to tolerate that so you're going to talking about hundreds of millimeters of mercury you know probably five hundred to eight hundred millimeters of mercury of pressure just to even get an occlusive effect. Um, And so I'm not ever going to know my LOPs to understand percentages here. So then we can't standardize this as a profession um, to say that this treatment, it was this treatment for this treatment because, you know, 400 millimeters of mercury on you is probably way different than 400 millimeters of mercury on someone with a bigger limb. Um and, and but people are just like, well, we'll just use these same numbers. Well well then you're cheating the patient because you're using different occlusions. And and there's a, a neOA study that did that. You know, they they just chose a pressure um and used it on females and found results, and they chose a pressure and used that same pressure on males and didn't find results in people with neOA a so, so there's a safety issue and there's a, a standardizability issue that that I have a problem with with those.
0: Is there a minimum frequency? That should be achieved with bfr to see clinically significant changes
1: that's that's a tough question because clinically significant we don't know probably because we just don't have the large multi-center trials done you know we have a giant fever fracture trial going on right now called repair um and, and we're hoping to get into at least 250 subjects um, like any study recruitment's the hardest part um so then we have to lean on what do the healthy studies tell us And and in the healthy studies from a systematic review and meta-analysis, it's two to three times a week, um, did have the best effect size. So right now we would probably say two at a minimum, you know, three, um, and and three if if possible. That is doing BFR at loads though. So that's, you know, this 20 to 30% load. If we're not able to do load at all, we're probably getting a a lower protein synthetic response. Um, and, And so we think in those cases, if you can get them in more frequently, we're probably getting more clinical, meaningful changes. And so um, as you're able to get at least a little load, maybe you can spread it out two to three times a week. If you're very acutely post-op and you're just kind of using tourniquets for ischemic preconditioning or the cell swelling type approach that we talk about, probably more frequently, but more, to, more to, more to come on that.
0: With blood flow restriction, if the cuff has to be proximal to the area that's worked on, how can you get changes for things like shoulder rehab?
1: Yeah, that's, that's another one of those like great questions. We get asked it a whole lot. And with the least amount of like, yes, we have this definitive reason why there's, there's theories. And and so there are papers that have shown changes um, on trunk muscles. So changes at the pec and then changes at the glute. Um, and, And those are both increased strength changes when they repeated these movements or, or on imaging, Increase cross-sectional area changes. And so then it's like, what the heck, this makes no sense to me. And so if, if you're to really ask uh, the folks looking at this right now, there's there's kind of two prevailing theories. One theory is this downstream fatigue effect. And, and that is if I'm doing something like a push exercise, so like a push-up or a bench press, if I If I put a tourniquet on, all of a sudden I fatigue my triceps rather rapidly. And as those start to fatigue, I force the more proximal muscles to become more of a prime mover. And and we've seen that from EMG data that it's gone higher. um, If you put a tourniquet on during low-level bench press exercise compared to that same exercise without. And and we see that in squats, uh, squat study as well where glute size has increased. Um, and, and squat strength has increased in the low, low tourniquet group. And again, that was probably the quads got so fatigued that all of a sudden the glutes become more of a prime mover. And we see that in our labs and, and anecdotally with our patients where they're doing something like just a box squat. And and with the tourniquet on, they're like, man, I feel like my butt's working much harder than it normally does. And that's probably because the, the we just fatigued the quad and made the glutes start to work more. So that's that's one theory, downstream fatigue. The other theory is this systemic um kind of global response which gets a lot of a lot of the physiology guys kind of worked up um but that is can i do it at a remote region like the lower extremities and just get such this big anabolic drive that i can use an upper extremity exercise without it and and see a change somewhere else just because of of the increase in abolism? and there's a couple studies that have done lower extremity exercises with tourniquet And then an upper extremity exercise without, and showed changes only in the group that put the tourniquet on um, when you've done that. And so not real sure. There's there's new stuff called remote ischemic preconditioning, um, which came from the cardiac world. And that's where I put a tourniquet on before I go in and have like major heart surgery. Um, And it has a protective effect for the kidneys or the heart. We've seen it has a protective effect for the brain after injuries and even reduced hematoma responses in an animal model. And so there might just be something from hypoxia that, that forces things to change that, that we just are not sure of. And so there's a lot of speculation. Is this a humoral response? Is this a nervous response? Who knows? So, so that's what we know. Not great answers, but uh, we have a large rotator cuff trial. Um, that's getting ready to start up. So hopefully clinically we'll see some stuff. Uh, we have a total hip trial and then we're also um, hopefully getting an FAI trial. Um, so we can, we can see clinically this is whole true as well.
0: And in terms of a protocol to use, there's some studies that cite the 30, 15, 15, 15 repetitions or 75 repetitions total. Um, Where did that come from in prescribing that program? Is there different research out there about how many repetitions? Well,
1: one thing about research is everyone just uses what people did before you. (laughs) So 30, 15, 15, 15 worked. And then if something works, most labs are going to say, well, that worked and I want my study to work. So I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. So what you'll see is, I mean, you're even seeing this in this remote ischemic preconditioning. Everyone's using 225 pressure because that worked. And then it's kind of like, well, but wait a minute, we should probably be personalizing this. And so you see this just plethora of everyone doing the same thing because they're looking at different mechanisms but they're like I don't want to mess with the volume here because I'm studying myostatin changes or mTOR changes and that's what I'm interested in so let's use what worked so then you've got everyone says well this is what worked the most and and so um, then it becomes lore, and it's like well this is just what you do so why why is that used you know there's not like a study that says this is why the set and rep scheme was done Um, but you know, the, the kind of prevailing theory is you do have a first high volume set to kind of deoxygenate the ring out the oxygen of the muscle. So that, that first set of 30 is, is typically pretty easy, um, because you still have plenty of oxygen within the limb and, and you're using this low load. Then you go through a rest period under occlusion. And then the next three sets of 15 are kind of the, the volume target that you would hit at this 20 to 30% load. And so then that's why that was chosen. And then those next three sets of 15 become really tough because all of a sudden Krebs is done from that first high volume set and, and you're really trying to max out the fast twitch fibers. It's high volume, it's 75 reps. Now, that doesn't mean it's it has to be what you do. I mean, we we, we use it just because it, it has worked. Um, but, but one reason we like to use it is... It, for one, it seems to be able to get the muscle to fatigue, which is our goal. Um, we we want to get to where we've done like a exercise, like maybe a, a quad exercise under tourniquet. If we can get, if we kind of got, we think our one rep max close that seventy five reps. We're we're just hoping by that last rep, they're like ah, I can't do another rep to save my life. If you hit that muscle fatigue or failure, you pretty much won. So so it seems to work if you can get your one RM right. But then the hard part is how do you get your one RM, right? Um, and and so clinically you have to first guess. And so uh, if you're guessing, it's nice to have a target volume to, to shoot for, because then you can kind of adjust your load to try and meet that target. So if say I have someone and I put a five pound ankle weight on them and after that first set, they're like, there's no way I'm going to finish three more sets of this, then it's like, okay, we start taking the load off. So we're trying to guesstimate where their load is to get that 75 reps. Or if they got to the third set and they're like, this is too easy. I'm going to be able to do this forever. We're like, man, I really underguessed it. So we add more load. So we use that targeted volume to, to sit there and dial in where their load is. And then we'll say, okay, if you get 75 reps at your next session, we think we came close to where your target is. That it, 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 You almost got to failure then we're gonna take the load up a little bit. So we'll use that 75 is your goal. If you hit it, the load has to go up. If you don't hit it, then we probably overshot it and we need to take your load down a little bit. So so we like to use it to help us understand the 1RM. If you can measure 1RMs and go on doing like failure sets and things like that um, is is probably a great way to go. We found, we tried to go just with failure um, where we tell patients do four sets to failure. Um, tracking their data, it seems like humans consistently have a hard time coming in and, and making themselves go to failure over and over, especially if we're not like just sitting there coaching them um, to do it. So, giving them also a bullseye target to shoot for seems beneficial in the clinical setting. So, that's what we have now. You don't have to stick to that, but but it, it seems to work.
2: Is that done per exercise? So, would you do like multiple exercises? Let's say for a lower body. With the cuff on or do you tend to just do you know 75 reps let's say for knee extensions and then you'll you know take the cuff off and do other stuff
1: yeah so you would do 75 reps for your target exercise and so say we're going after quad here we do 75 reps deflate how's that feel what what was it like at the end oh my god i couldn't do another rep to save my life my muscles smoked great you know and then we look at what's what's our protocol tell us or what are we doing Okay, now we gotta do like a posterior chain. Then we reinflate again. We give them at least a minute rest to allow the hemodynamics to, to kind of get back to baseline. Um, we reinflate again, and then we'll do posterior chain exercise. And they go through that, and then we deflate, um, and, and then we let it rest. And then okay, oh, it looks like you gotta do a calf exercise. We'll reinflate again. Our, our, our saying is, you know, there's two ways it looks like currently to to really make adaptive muscle changes. Um, you can either lift ACSM guideline loads or you can lift uh, a light load with a tourniquet. Those both seem to make positive changes. So we just ask ourselves, what's the reason this person's doing this exercise? Well, they're doing it for strength hypertrophy. Can they meet the ACSM loads to make that change? No, okay, well, let's put a tourniquet on them. Um, and, and so that's the way we do it. We deflate. Some people, I mean, we seen like they'll leave it on the patient for like 30 minutes or something and, and do it that entire time. That's extremely hard. Um, Most patients aren't going to be happy with that and tolerate that. Um, And and even seeing from the tourniquet literature, greater than 30 minutes of a tourniquet inflation, um, you start to suppress the the alpha motor fibers, um, the highly myelinated nerves. And and as they start to get suppressed, then the unmyelinated pain nerves are, are able to kind of just go wild and they start kicking in. And so then you see this kind of elevated pain response. Um, and, and what we've seen anecdotally is these short duration bouts of, of BFR, um, we, we get an analgesic effect. So there's a lot of things to take into account um, than just kind of inflating and go crazy and keep it on for 45 minutes to an hour.
2: So if someone can lift over 70% of their max, do you tend to not use the cuff?
1: Yeah, if. Yeah, humans are made to lift. You know, humans aren't made to lift with a a tourniquet on their limb. And so if if you can lift, lift. That's that's our motto. And and so once we get there, our goal is always, because we do this clinically, we usually have people standing around waiting for the tourniquet. So we're telling patients, you know, we want you to use this and just get, this is a bridge to get you to be in a normal human again and lifting. And we want you to leave here and lift. And so um, once we feel that we've got them to where they can handle those loads, we really try and transition them off.
0: What about for professional athletes? So know that some are, ones, yeah. Yeah, non-injured.
1: So athletes. from a performance standpoint? Yeah, and, and, yeah. and so we, we work a whole lot with those folks now. And, and so there's, there's different kind of scenarios to think about here. And, and so one of them is that there are professional athletes who are a little bit more aged. And so I'm a pro athlete. I've got bum knees and, and lifting heavy hurts. And, and, but I'm breaking down all, all competitive season, but I want to do something as a stimulus to try and keep, you know, like maybe thigh size, cause I've got an arthritic knee. So w- what we do with some of the teams, um, and, you know, I just talked to one of the NFL teams and they have their, their old man's club who are primarily doing more BFR stuff. Um, because again, we want them to be able to lift heavy, but it, it, it hurts them and makes them worse. So they're doing this as a way to take care of it. And that's also, Maybe some of these folks that have an aggravated injury. Um, I've had a cartilage repair in my knee. I'm really nervous that, you know, putting a lot of load over time all the time is not great. So they might lift heavy, you know, building up into the season. And then some of them will taper off um, throughout the season. There's also the highly traveling athlete. Um, So your basketball players, your hockey players, your baseball players, who they're like, I play a game and I've got a day off and I'm flying and I've got another game. To, to try and lift with them throughout the season is very tough, not only logistically, but then heavy lifting, you do have a downside of, of muscle damage. And, and muscle damage um, not only causes soreness, but it reduces performance. And, and so for those folks, we're doing what, what we can throughout the season. And, and there was an ESPN story we did with an NBA guy where, where they did it throughout the season just to maintain this protein synthetic rate. So they're, so they're doing things to try and repair the muscle. Um, from the from the breakdown of the games when, when they don't have a time to do a heavy lift and, and don't want to be sore as they move into to a game a night or two later. Um, and, and then the last thing that's kind of the hot topic right now with the athletes um, is, is ischemic preconditioning, and, and that's the application of, of a tourniquet in the absence of exercise at pretty much full occlusion for multiple bouts, and that seems to potentially have a protective effect Um, after, after doing something really hard, like, like playing a game or, or doing a bunch of plyometrics or something like that, um, it, it it might mitigate, it looks like muscle damage from some blood marker draws, as well as return to performance measures that we've seen one, two and three days post. So so basically they're just laying there after the game and and taking these tourniquets up to full inflation, which is, which is not super fun, but, but it's, but it seems pretty, pretty interesting of, of the results we're seeing that that's a very hot topic right now.
0: Uh, what are your thoughts on non-health professionals using BFR?
1: Well, you know, I mean I don't know if that's my lane to to have thoughts on it. You know, for here's the thing. If if you like our system is, is pricey. Um it's got all sorts of bells and whistles, it's the safest thing uh based on all the research out there, it's very standardizable. Um, but yeah, you know, if I'm going to the gym, I'm I'm not I'm probably not going to buy something like that. They couldn't even buy something like that because you have to have a medical license. And so obviously this has gotten so like hot topic recently, but you know, when I, when I first presented at the NFL combine years ago, um, I just did an Amazon search to see if there was any BFR stuff out there. Um, Cause we'd already done an ESPN story and there wasn't anything. Um, and, and we looked, you know, a month or so back, there's six pages on Amazon now of BFR things straps and wraps and all sorts of crazy stuff. I don't know. I mean, you can do whatever you want to yourself. If you want to put a tourniquet around your neck, you can do that. I mean, you can choose to do whatever you want to yourself um, as a clinician. Once we decide we're going to do something to another individual, all bets are off. And so I guess that means, you know, what does others mean? Is this personal trainers or just, you know, I'm a, I'm a gym rat going to the gym and I want to just wrap and strap. Um, so again, I think if you can just lift heavy just just freaking lift heavy and, and do that sort of stuff. I don't know if you need to throw extra wraps on and things like that. Um, it, it, it seems to do pretty well, naturally, just being able to to lift. Clinically, we have people that can't lift heavy, so I think this is a great alternative. Um, you know, you just gotta be safe. You know, there's, there's a lot of rules out there um, that have been established in the tourniquet literature, so if you're choosing to do this to yourself, uh, probably less is more. Um, don't crank it as tight as you can potentially have a policy from it.
0: Are there any screening questionnaires that clinicians can use before using BFR with a patient?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, so we have a patient handout that we share with our, with our folks. And, and then there's a contraindication list. And so if they're on that contra list, um, again, you better have a good reason to say, I'm, I'm going to do this because the, basically our contra list is people who would be contraindicated from even putting the tourniquet on for surgery. Um, and, and so you know, that, that list is included, um, with, with our course and with our device. So that's the first screen. And if a doc says, Hey, I want this patient to do this, but this patient, you know, is, is in sickle cell anemic state. Um, Hey doc, I don't think this is a good patient. And then you better have that conversation back and forth of, of why they might want to do that. Um, cause that's what we're seeing now is. So many surgeons and, and docs are on board, you know, we're seeing BFR just prescribed. So we need to screen that out for them. Um, and, and then beyond that, there's, you know, if you're worried about the rhabdo stuff, there's, there's uh, TT's classification. It's a list of, of rhabdo potential risk criteria. Um, they can also be used as a screen. Um, and, and so if, if there's a, a reason why you might be concerned with that, uh, we would, might also include that, but more than anything, the contra list
0: you briefly mentioned like post-surgery or post-injury just using the cuff with uh like passive range of motion early on so when after injury or surgery would you start using bfr
1: yeah so okay so let's say surgery first that seems to be getting more and more to the to the acute time time point here um, even with our surgeons early on, it's funny, like the, the worst injured people we had, these limb salvage ones who they're like, well, they might cut their leg off anyways. Um, our docs were like, just, yeah, let's do it. It looks safe enough. Go, 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 go. And we just went crazy with it. Um, but then our, our, our sports med docs were like, eh, let's wait a little while. Um, let the incision heal, you know, at least like four weeks or so. And, and then all of a sudden it got like tighter and tighter with our group where it's like, man, that first week post-op, let's get them in. And then, Hey, I'm worried about this person's thigh going into surgery. Let's get prehab them on BFR and then get them in as soon as I get after surgery. And and actually we just did a podcast with the, the chief of sports medicine, uh, orthopedic surgeon, friend of ours. that started a lot of this BFR with us at our base. And you know, that's, that was his thing. He's like, you know, yeah, as soon as we can get them in, I get them in and, and he just had knee surgery and he, he started his BFR the day after surgery. So um our our docs and our folks that have been doing it a while that are, that understand it and feel comfortable with it they're getting these routine arthroscopies and knee reconstructions and things like that in pretty quickly um some of them like to give it a, a week or two to just let the knee calm down or the elbow calm down and the incision calm down the the larger incision things like a, a, a knee arthroplasty um, that seems to be surgeon dependent. So some surgeons are just really nervous about the incision and, and like to wait until the incision is completely healed. Um, and, and we have others that, that um, are very comfortable starting it even within that first week um, because they know that the quicker they get it on, the better. So we don't have great guidance. We have studies that are doing it um, very early after surgery. Um, our femur fracture trial, um, we're doing it, you know, on these on these femur fractures. And, and we haven't had any problems or adverse events with with those, um, not any of our surgical trials either. So hard to say, but, but you know, as soon as the surgeon, the patient, and you are comfortable, it seems like it's an okay time. Um, and then injury, it depends on the injury. Uh, you know, we, we see, and we read a little kind of, it's a fluff paper in this journal, but with University of Florida, after, you know, immediately after hamstring injuries, getting it on and, and, and seeing in a small case, case series that, um, had had pretty positive results. It was tolerated. They even did some imaging and used it against historical imaging that they had and looked like they had a better regenerate response um, of, of muscle versus fibrosis tissue. Um, and so some of these muscle injuries were getting on pretty rapidly. and we have a study with the University of Southern California looking at at, at hamstring um, injuries in and healthies and, and kind of the timing and muscle damage effects and tolerance and stuff like that. So kind of all over the place.
2: What are some big unknowns that you're hoping will be answered in in the research in the future?
1: Man, yeah, gosh, there's probably too many. So um big unknowns would be you know understanding a little bit more of, of which which diagnoses really fit, um the the timing of, of BFR on these diagnoses, the tolerance in these these very sick individuals that I think could be great candidates for it that have lots of medical comorbidities. I mean, we, just this last month, we've had two inpatient trials happen, you know, which is crazy. A, a few years ago, when I was first really doing this and talking to other folks about it, you know, that they looked at me like I was saying I barbecued kittens when I said I'm going to put tourniquets on people after injury. And, and now, you know, we, we've got inpatient trials. We've got kidney failure trials going on. Um, so I think the more medically unstable patients, this might be a way for us to manipulate pathways um, that we weren't able to mi- manipulate before um, as, as therapists. And then there's a lot of timing. So we're, we're really looking at the regenerative medicine response, and can we take a, a limb from a from a high a norm, normoxia to hypoxia? And somehow coax out things like hematopoietic—it's hard to say stem cells, but hematopoietic—you know—progenitor cells or growth factors out of a low, low oxygen state like bone, and get it into tissue. And, and then we have this ability as as rehab professionals to to kind of coax some of these regenerative medicine things like like stem cells. And and then you've got not only from us from using it for a healing response, but then if we're looking at combining it with things like orthobiologics, and can we do blood draws at certain time points? And they've done some BFR with us and and we've made these these injections kind of supercharged or after injection can we be the people who are able to kind of coax along the regenerative response because we know how to tease out these stem cells and and other growth factors so lots lots of big questions man seems like we have a million the proximal stuff i mean that's huge um that i just reviewed a paper that showed proximal changes at the hip doing rehab exercises um and and so that's proximal thing, if clinically that shows change, that's huge because there's so many proximal things that are load intolerant. You know, your tendon repairs in the shoulder or FAI of the hip, you know, they're just super load intolerant individuals. So if we can reduce load and show adaptive changes proximally, that's huge.
2: It's interesting that it sounds like it might become more commonplace, not just in clinics, but hospitals might take it on too.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, on our podcast today, one of our guys who, who trains for us, you know, he just did one of the biggest healthcare systems in Atlanta and and we we have these these large healthcare systems that, that are doing like full on trainings. Um, HSS in New York and Memorial Herman Houston, Methodist Houston, Sanford up in, you know, Sioux Falls and and all throughout that area. So these these large systems are, are really starting to come on board and, and, and adopt it, which is which is cool to see. It's no, no longer just a just for the athlete and just for the service member. Um, it's really you know blooming out, it looks like, to more of our our general rehab population that most of us see. That's
0: awesome. Um, and then last question, where can people find out more about you?
1: Well, I guess the easiest place, we have a website. It's OwensRecoveryscience.com. We have a blog on there and, and more information uh, about what we do. We just started a podcast just because we, we, we have so much inside baseball that we talk all the time that we wanted to just share a lot of the things that we talk about um, and we introduce some of the experts in this field and, and other, other types of things. So that's uh, Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Awesome, well thanks
2: for taking the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. And, and again, I love your city, Toronto. I can't wait to get back up there.
0: Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.